from Cape Town. This is the voice of the Cape. 91.3 FM. The Leadership Hour. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Zeg Sanigans here on a very cold Monday evening. Um, yes, uh, tonight we, in fact, I had the jingle say leadership hour. Tonight we're only going to have the legal hour. So I bet I can just fix that quickly um, when we have the next jingle. So, yes, tonight we have a, a long lineup of lawyers, as, as usual. And um, we're going to be talking around COVID. We're going to talk around the riots in in the United States. And we're going to talk around Muslim personal law. So the first lawyer we have on air tonight is uh, none other than uh, Senior Counsel um, Advocate Aslam Bava. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Aslam. Salam, Ikhfan. Shukran for, for, you know, coming, for joining us tonight on air. Um, all the way from the Johannesburg bar and um, joining us via telecon. Aslam, how's the weather up there? Because we are in for a serious storm this side. Uh, Ikhran, it's, uh, it's calm. Um, it's, uh, in the day it gets a bit warm, but I understand this weekend we're going to be very cold. Yeah, well, we are bracing for that storm. Now, other than the, the natural storm, there's yes. also a legal storm happening in the courts, you know, with the affected parties reigning high court applications on the government as part of the fallout due to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic regulations and the lockdown. And I'm sure you're very much uh, alive to all these things happening. Yes, Ikhshan. Uh, I think, you know, this is unprecedented in the world uh, in, the, in the sense that people are trying to grapple and get to terms of how to react. And similarly, governments are trying to find ways of curbing the COVID-19 and the spread of the coronavirus. And because there's no precedent that they have in recent history, they, were, they are, you know, in... Uh, Many years ago, with the Black Plague and what have no, we? No, but that's by a by a yard truck, you know. That yeah, was, uh, <laughs> so I they don't really know mm. what, what systems to get into, and so they they're trying and they're trying to put different measures in place. The question is whether these measures are all reasonable, and whether the, or some of or some uh, you know trampling on on rights. And uh, because we have the constitution. This is now becoming a huge aspect in terms of multiple rights that people want to exercise. Mm. You know, the Constitution allows, uh, in terms of Section 36, a limitation on rights. Yes. So every right is not uh, an unlimited right. You can't just say, you know, I I want to do X, Y, and Z, so I've got the freedom of speech so I can go and swear at somebody or Mm. do things like that. There is a limitation. yeah, now I understand that, but uh, look, uh, what I would like to get to tonight, you know, uh, in fact, just before we get to, I mean, tonight, obviously, you're going to tell us all about the very important issue of the tobacco, you know, that has been yeah. outlawed. But before, you know, maybe just touch slightly, because there's other lawyers that's also going to touch on some of these things uh, that, that I'm going to be interviewing tonight. But on this issue of Reino, David de Beer, and others, yeah. There was an application up there in Gauteng on your side of the world. 
that resulted, you know, in the in the judgment that struck down certain provisions contained in the lockdown regulations, um, almost yes. declaring that the lockdown is unlawful. So maybe you want to say something about that particular judgment? Yeah. I, well, before we get onto what I also want to talk about is the British American uh, tobacco. Yes. Um, no, no, that's judge. the main one you need to talk about tonight. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought so that. that yeah, that judgment, in essence, um, you know, uh, previously, if you remember that there was the uh, uh, issue relating to the to the mosques, the mosques. Yes, the masjid, yeah. And uh, after that, um, this application was brought by the Beers, and he was represented by the same lawyer who brought the one for the opening of the masjid, okay. the Umar. Mm. And um, they argued the propositions that the, the, uh, there was a restriction on constitutional rights and therefore it ought to be struck down as being unconstitutional and the court upheld it. Uh, the court upheld those... Yeah, but, I, but Aslam, I don't want to go into the merits of that case. I just wanted yeah. to speak to focus, because uh, you are senior counsel, I'm going to take advantage of this now, yeah. so for the benefit <laughs> of the community. Um, yeah. Let's just focus on the adjectival part, the, the procedural part of this thing. Um, so here was a judgment given, uh, yeah. you know, saying that uh, lockdown regulations is unlawful, and now, what's the procedure beyond this? Because our government has now indicated that they're going to take this matter now to a full bench. Can you explain that process to us quickly? Okay. So, so the process is generally when you get a judgment, if you believe that the judgment is wrong, okay, mm -hmm. you then engage in a process called uh, or an appeal. You appeal the process. But in order to go through the appeal process, you have to go back to the same judge and convince the judge that a different judge hearing this matter will come to a different conclusion. So basically, you've got to tell the judge you got it wrong. Mm. Okay. And so, that is a very tough proposition. Because okay. now the judge has to now take his ego one side, his or her ego. They've got to consider it from a purely objective basis, which is very difficult because you are subjective already mm -hmm. as a judge, as an individual. So, by the way, uh, surprise, surprise to everybody, judges are human beings too. Uh, <laughs> so Sometimes what, what, we as lawyers uh, find difficulty believing that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you okay. know, I can't comment on that, Iksan. Don't rather not. <laughs> you, you've got to appear in front of a judge tomorrow, I don't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, the, the point is that when you now come before the judge, you've got to, you have to convince, it's called an application, it's called an application for leave to appeal. Mm -hmm. And leave to appeal means that same judge has to say, okay, some other judge may differ with me. So I'm going to allow you to take this entire process and appeal to another judge. And you can go, if it's a factual element and not too much uh, legal, too many legal aspects, it goes to what they call a full bench. So say it's held in the Cape, in the Western Cape, or in uh, Johannesburg, it goes to the full bench so from a local division to a provincial division, or the full bench of that local division as well. And in, in the local division, you will get uh, two to three judges, generally three judges, mm -hmm. okay? But if it is a highly technical and legal aspect, yeah. then the judge will say, okay, I'm going to bypass the full bench in our division, I'm going to send you to the Supreme Court of Appeal. Okay, now just on that point, uh, we're just going to go on a quick ad break and then uh, please stay on the line and then we're going to take it from there.
from Cape Town. This is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins. And we are back with the Legal Hour. Aslam is still on the line. Yes, I'm still here. Okay, excellent. Uh, and I just, I mean, Aslam, just tell me quickly the issue of timing. Now, yes. you've explained, you know, under what conditions things will go to a full bench or to the SCA if it's a very technical legal argument. Yes. Um, and, of course, th- does the judge have a discretion to send it to a full bench or to, or, or to the SCA? Yes, the, uh, the judge does have a discretion, so it's dependent on whether the judge views it as uh, as just a factual element that needs to be clarified uh, and is not so technical. So he will uh, he will assess it, and at that stage, he's got the discretion to say, "Look, I think this is uh, going to change our law," mm. and I think I think it needs attention of the Supreme Court of Appeal, where five judges will sit and they will decide on the matter. But or, not, mm-hmm. Or, or he can say, "Look, I think it's it's. There may be different decisions in this jurisdiction, so I'd rather just submit it at at this stage. It's not going to affect our law fundamentally, so I, I'd rather submit it to a full bench uh, in in our division." Okay, but now timing. We're talking now. Um, you know, there's of course uh, we've already been in lockdown now for for sixty odd days, almost seventy yeah. days. Yeah. And uh, now this thing is going now. I mean, let's assume for a moment that this judge is now submitting it to a full bench. Yeah. And after that full bench has made a decision, that can also then be taken to the Supreme Court of Appeal after that. Correct. Correct. And after that, it can also be taken to the Constitutional Court. Yes. So until 2008, mm-hmm. the Constitutional Court appeals to the Constitutional Court were only on constitutional issues. Mm-hmm. In, in 2008, that changed. Mm-hmm. So matters even of a, a commercial nature, of a civil nature, a criminal nature, could be taken to the Constitutional Court, provided it was in the interest of justice to do so. So are you saying they can skip the SCA? Uh, they generally would go through, you can ask for direct access to directly from the High Court um, to, to the Constitutional Court, and that would be a form of a direct access on an appeal. Or the uh, general route that is followed is it normally goes to the Supreme Court of Appeal and then to the Constitutional Court. That is how not by a long It's probably going to take a very long time to get there still. It, it does. Mm. It's on, uh, you know, I was just uh, having a chat today to the uh, Senior Commissioner, Shafir uh, Amir Mia, today, and we were talking about access to justice. And it is it is a long route. It is costly. Litigation is exceedingly costly. So how is it that this should, uh, you know, the door should open so that people who are, feel that an injustice is perpetrated are allowed access to, co- uh, to courts? So while we've got the constitutional right uh, exercisable in terms of the Bill of Rights access to courts, factually, in terms of 
of, of the financial structure of litigation, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people to access the court. No, and definitely. I, I was mm. telling him, if I had to go to litigation, I will not be able to afford myself. I don't think any individual can really, unless you're exceptionally wealthy, can really afford the courts nowadays. I mean, it's, it's really become uh, inaccessible from a financial point of view. It is, it mm. is, and and that is something that we need to start looking at as to how to change that environment, because you can't have a wonderful constitution that says access to courts, everybody has, a, but people cannot, they simply mm. cannot. No, yeah, no, I mean, people struggle to get taxi fare to court, never mind paying lawyers. So, right. I mean, that's the first uh, hurdles we need to cross. But coming back, we, we, we're losing a bit of time here now because, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's actually quite nice talking about these things. But we definitely need to look at that uh, situation where laws are not, the, the law is not accessible to people. Then, yeah, correct. Look, there was a, I saw today there was this hairdresser's case. So just, just for the benefit of the of the barbers and the hairdressers out there, that yes. there was another application, but this was in the Cape. So this uh, application was launched right. by a political party and um, the Palladium Hair Company. But we'll yes. keep our eye on that, and hopefully, inshallah, we can talk about that uh, next time we we have you online. You know, so yes. that will, that's quite an interesting uh, case to watch. Then, the main th- reason why I called you earlier today and uh, and is to speak to you about this uh, application, also in the Cape, uh, by yes. British Ameri- American Tobacco Company against the government with regard to cigarettes. So, can right. you just take us through that quickly? And just give you an overview. There are 10, uh, 10 people or 10 applicants that have brought this application. And these applicants are across the board. They, they, what they uh, indicate themselves as being is the entire value chain of people involved in the, in the tobacco and vaping industry. And this goes down from suppliers, manufacturers, farmers, individuals like for example one of the applicants is a lady who could not bring this application on her own but she was she started a petition saying that uh, tobacco should be allowed uh, and a, a tobacco product should be a basic uh, essential or a basic product that should be sold so what happened in this entire process is that british american tobacco has taken it upon itself to start this application and it wants to declare uh, regulation 45 unconstitutional. That's the one that says that tobacco is forbidden or not allowed to yes. be sold. Okay. Yes, and 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 they say that uh, they they cited three parties. They've cited the minister, uh, uh, this, um, you know, uh, the the president, and the uh, COVID council. Mm-hmm. So they said to them, look, we have. Uh, a right and when it was level 5 we could have understood it at level 4 the president made a statement that at level 3 the uh, tobacco uh, products and, and related products will be able to be sold but in, just a week or so after that when it came t- uh, time to, to pre- uh, promulgate or announce the regulations the minister went against what the, what the president had said and so they said, but we don't have that certainty. And in any event, you are wrong because constitutionally you are depriving us of our rights. And so now they've brought an application to challenge this 
this um, restriction placed on them. They say it has a tremendous uh, impact uh, on the economy, on the fiscus, on the people who are selling. But they also make a, very, uh, a different case. They say we're not only bringing it in terms of the financial aspect of people, we're also bringing it, uh, or, or the companies that are suffering, and they show, they say the companies are suffering, the government in terms of tax is suffering, and illicit tobacco industries are booming. Mm. And they said that, for example, there's a well big uh, report which shows that uh, illicit trade in tobacco was under control and actually was diminishing and reducing. But what this COVID uh, and the restriction on, on, on uh, legal companies, what has happened is this illicit trade has now flourished. And the minister gave two reasons why she said that tobacco will not be allowed even under uh, level three. And her two reasons were, number one, that poor people will share cigarettes and therefore increase the COVID. Mm-hmm. And British American Tobacco says, but that's nonsensical. Because if you are saying, number one, you can uh, educate the masses, but why is there not a restriction, for example, on, on drinking, uh, for example, cold drinks? Mm-hmm. I mean, what if people share a cold drink? Or one can take it as far as, uh, you know, um, uh, liquor. You can say alcohol. What about people uh, sharing alcohol? And so they say that that is uh, that doesn't make sense. The second element that the minister said why cigarettes should not be allowed is that it affects the lungs, it weakens the lungs of the smokers. And they say that will continue in any event. They then produce a report from a doctor who says that, look, depriving people of cigarettes has got dire consequences. It is as like, um, uh, like coffee. They said you, you've got caffeine in coffee, you've got nicotine in cigarettes. And this has become like... a if you want to, a staple diet of people on a daily basis. They, they imbibe this. They use it. So you are depriving people of this sort of right. And you're damaging the economy. You're damaging businesses. Um, and therefore, what you are doing is unconstitutional. And they set out various bases on which they challenge Regulation 45 and the impact that it has. Um, and they say that denial of, uh, there's another point, uh, an angle they use. They also have a report which says that the denial of access to tobacco is detrimental to the emotional well-being of individuals who are used to smoking. Mm. So people use it as an emotional crutch. And they're saying that these kind of elements are very detrimental and you, you have to look at it on a holistic basis. And whether one agrees with smoking or not, one has to try and look at the factual elements and see, does this make sense? You know, and you speak to smokers or you try and find out, and they think we are doing it as a public interest matter as well. So we're not only looking at ourselves, we're looking at the public interest at large, and this deprivation at level three shouldn't be existing. Mm. And therefore, Regulation 45 is unconstitutional, it violates fundamental rights of individuals and we're going to be challenging it. But they do say that at level five, we understood it and we started engaging with the government and the president. At level four, we also understood it. When the announcement was made by the president that it was going to be allowed at level three, we were happy as 
from 1st of June. But came just before the 1st of June, the minister reversed that. And they said, although we're still engaging, we now find that we have to go to court because it's, it's come to a point where we can no longer accept that uh, this industry will be, will be um, uh, well, affected to the level uh, at which it's going to continue. They say, what, what, what happens if this goes back to level four? The restrictions yeah. will almost remain forever, and then they, they reserve their right because at level four, regulation 27 was uh, placed a huge restriction, and they said we reserve our rights that now we will challenge regulation 45 at level three. But if it goes back to level four, we will also challenge Le- rev- uh, regulation 27. Yeah. Yes. Asam, what I think, uh, one point that, 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 that maybe, I mean, of course, we, the, the application is in already, and uh, one, of course, but one also needs to look at the whole point of that smokers are now almost forced to become criminals, because now that they're breaking the law, they're buying contraband goods, and... Um, that that is actually you know something one needs to look at you know if if the the, the laws are reasonable if the, the obedience demanded comes from a reasonable space i'm surprised i haven't made that argument you know in the in the submission i mean the, in the original application because now contraband uh, is around and of course people that's used to smoking they're going to pay that 150 200 rand per packet but it effectively makes them criminals if they are caught that's one point that you are raising is some which they have not capitalized in the application and Mm. they should have Uh, that's the point of making ordinary citizens into criminals because they have got a habit Mm-hmm. And that habit is one that affects them. It doesn't necessarily affect others. And there is a case to be made out which has been argued in certain propositions that, for example, alcohol has an impact uh, on others because of the violence and uh, you know the behavior associated with people who imbibe alcohol to the point where they get intoxicated. Mm. And they say cigarette doesn't do that. Uh, cigarettes don't do that. But I, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not a smoker myself, so I don't feel the, uh, the, the effects of not having a cigarette. But many people do, and that forces them into a situation. And like you say, not only do they become ordinary citizens now become classified as criminals and psychologically how that impacts and affects people, because if you can break one law, you'll start saying, you know, can I break other laws if this is criminality. The second element is that the price of the product has escalated to such a level that illicit uh, tobacco sellers have now uh, escalated in terms of the value of, uh, of, the, uh, of the profits that they are making. Mm. And, and, and legitimate trade which was involved in or even giving money back to the government by way of taxes is now being completely bypassed. Yeah. Look, bottom line is uh, that the rules must be reasonable and um, not only in a court of law, but also in the court of public opinion. I mean, people mustn't feel that they're living in this country and they're being prejudiced. I mean, like you say, I'm also not a smoker. But one could almost empathize with somebody who's been smoking for the past 50 years and suddenly 
they don't have access to it. So when there's an opportunity to have access to it at a cost that's times 10 or 20, the amount they would normally have paid, they're going to take, you know, they're not going to look at the fact, oh, I'm becoming a criminal by doing this. They just think, no, I have a need. And and of course, their want is actually a need for them. Absolutely correct. And, And that's what the fundamental point that you've touched on is that the... Uh, the regulations themselves has to be uh, reasonable, and the method of implementation has to be reasonable as well. Because you, you, it one goes, it goes hand in hand, and you can't uh, buy a, you know a, a magic wand wish away the entire smokers. Because I don't know that uh, there's no statistics as to what population. Uh, you know, of uh, in South Africa, smokers, but there is a large population of smokers, mm. and, and and the point is, you can't wish it away, and you can't bring a restrictive element in terms of legislation to say that I am going to create an environment where there are not going to be any smokers. What is what has happened is that you will possibly encourage more people to become smokers, but that's a different topic. The right, as far as the, our constitution is concerned, is that. The limitation must be reasonable. And it has to be a a reasonable limitation. It can't be an unreasonable limitation. And that is a fundamental point here, is that is this restriction placed by the minister on smoking cigarettes, on sale, on distribution, reasonable? And that is the entire aspect that the court will have to look at when dealing with this application. Um, Aslam, I'm hoping, inshallah, that maybe sanity will prevail and that maybe they could come to a settlement on this issue. Um, I, 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 I think that, that that will be the way. You know, alternate dis- dispute resolution is now becoming, you know, the new introduction of Rule 41A in litigation mm-hmm. where parties are, are, are compelled to go to mediation. And, you know, uh, hopefully there will be some uh, via media parties talking to each other and, and reaching some sort of reasonable solution. Aslam, I'm, I'm hoping that someone in government is listening to this program and maybe they can get you to mediate this problem and hopefully settle it for them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure. It's a smoking chance, but... <laughs> mm. But anyway, Shukran, very much for your time this evening and, uh, you know, and we wish you well and uh, be safe up there in Johannesburg and, uh, yeah, inshallah, we will hear from you soon again. Walaikum salam Iksan and weather the storm well all everyone in Cape Town look after yourselves and inshallah we speak again Walaikum salam Live from Cape Town this is the voice of the Cape 91.3 FM The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins And we're back with the legal hour, and I think uh, we have Randall Titus on the line. Good evening, Randall. Good evening, Ehsan, and uh, good evening, listeners. Thank you for joining us, Randall, and uh, I hope you, you're gearing up for the storm. I mean, you're living in a space where there's, where there's water. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, it's very cold. They were talking about uh, um, waves coming up to seven meters. So. Oh, really? Yeah, no, well, uh, 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 well, hopefully, uh, it mentions us, Ehsan. Mm. 
Anyway, listen, Reno, why I, I've got you on the line tonight is to talk about the, the, the protests that have taken place across the U.S., you know, on the back of the killing of George Floyd and the demonstrations, you know, we see on TV, you know, is happening in, in every state. And, of course, it has gone beyond the killing of George Floyd, and now they're hoping to tip the tide against systemic racism. And, of course, we have, we've seen now, you know, members of the public, activists, celebrities, uh, members of the public, even police. They've all joined hands to fight against, you know, police brutality and, of course, brutality of any, in any form. So, South Africa, we've been watching this thing. And we obviously, we, 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 we're looking at certain things we've seen also from outside. You know, certain um, during this uh, lockdown period, we've seen a bit of brutality from the military. We've seen brutality from the police. And of course, you know, it, it resonates with us, you know, and um, and because we come from a, from a, a state of, of, of apartheid, you know, um, mm -hmm. prior to 1994, you know, these things, you know, it affects us deeply. So can you just take us through, you know, the, the, this, uh, because I wanted you specifically to deal with the potential penalty that these police uh, officials uh, could suffer as a result uh, of, of their conduct. So just take us through that quickly. Sure. Look, I think it's, uh, the point one is, I mean, the, the conduct was despicable and it's completely unbecoming police officers who are meant to maintain law and order and not uh, be the cause of, uh, of disorder. Now, these those police officers in the, in the Floyd, George Floyd uh, matter, they are now charged with uh, initially, it was, it was third degree um, um, murder or homicide and that's been upgraded to a, a second degree uh, homicide um, and uh, okay, homicide what is homicide now I'm sorry I get carried away when I talk about uh, the American system it's a murder okay it's murder um, mm. yeah that's in plain language um and, and in America, there are degrees of it. Uh, it comes down to ultimately what is uh, your state of mind. Um, initially, uh, when the police officer in question was charged, it was third degree murder. And that means, uh, from the African context, it's uh, akin to culpable homicide. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an element of negligence. Uh, which was determined initially. So this culpable homicide is means you did not actually have the intention to kill, that your conduct, you know, basically allowed this person to die. Correct. Okay. Correct. It, was a, it was a negligent act. Okay. Um, and after, as you will know by now, as the listeners will know, there was a huge public outcry about it, and particularly given the video that which went viral, um, and George Floyd's uh, crying out, he can't breathe. Um, and the, the, the police officers were, they acted in, in reckless disregard for his well-being. And the, the third-degree ch murder charge was then upgraded, he used that word, to second degree. And uh, and that just means, simply means that it's now an intentional murder, not negligence, uh, because uh, it's about impulsive, in a sense, as opposed to pre-planned. Uh, a pre-planned murder would be what's called first-degree murder. 
Um, so the difference between the two is that um, in, the, in this case with George Floyd, the states there determined that there was no, uh, obviously no, it wasn't pre-planned because I think the police officers uh, uh, planned, they didn't get up in the morning to murder George Floyd. Um, they, they acted in reckless disregard for his safety when uh, uh, the, the officer pulled him down uh, with his knee on his neck. Uh, I mean, Randall, was there a difference between the, the person that had the, the, the knee on the neck? That obvious, that person was charged for second-degree murder, right? That's right. But now, those accomplices of the EZs, the other policemen, what were they charged yeah. for? Well, I think the, 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 the Americans, you know, as you know, uh, your son, um, they, they do things differently. They've got a different legal system. They are charged with aiding and abetting uh, in a, a second-degree murder. Mm-hmm. And, and, and aiding and abetting, as you quite rightly uh, uh, intimated earlier, it's, 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 uh, it's an accomplice. They, they accomplice to a, to a murder. Okay. Um, and, and that's, uh, that's uh, equally serious um, as the main perpetrator. I think in our law, it's probably called common cause. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So I don't think they have uh, the issue of or, common or other common purpose. Of common purpose, yeah. Common yes. purpose, yes. So, so, and the potential. Let's assume this guy is now found guilty. What, we, what, what is he looking at? Because of second degree murder, um, again, I'm not, I'm not going to say with the American system, but if you use South African context, in South Africa, if you are charged with. Um, uh, let's say second degree murder, although we don't have those uh, um, differentiations, um, you would have a minimum sentence imposed of around 15 years. Okay, but I, I look from what I saw in some news reports, they also have a minimum sentence that could potentially get him up to 20 years or more uh, in yeah. jail. Yeah, in South Africa, look, if, if you if you pre-plan a murder, um, if you pre-plan a murder, then you, you get you'll get life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. Um, in this instance, where, where it's not pre-planned, where it was acted impulsively, uh, where you acted with reckless disregard for someone's health and safety, um, there's, there's a many on charge, many on sentence imposed of 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that be, you know, in America, uh, the, the laws differ from state to state. And I think in, uh, where, where the, uh, the act took place, it might be well be 20 years as a minimum sentence. Yeah, well, it, it's, uh, we need to watch that space. I mean, uh, it, it may well be in a different country and a different, uh, but of course we need to watch it because in South Africa, you know, um, we are not immune to that, the potential of that type of brutality, you know, as due, due to uh, whether it's now police brutality or maybe even just no ordinary racism. Yes. So I think we need to really keep our eye on this one and, of course, uh, let the, the listeners, you know, understand, you know, the process from start to finish, you know. And, uh, and, and I, yeah, and I think also the listeners must, but I think, you know, we, we are fortified. You know, you know, many people speak ill of social media, but it's, it's social media that, that, that's going to give George Floyd justice ultimately. I mean, if it wasn't for that video that went viral, um, I doubt we would have had the effect that it's had. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, of course, know, even in South Africa, many of our uh, most vile acts perpetrated by, by, by the state. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the, the perpetrators were, were brought to book because of uh, um, uh, what civil society did. You know, yes. you, you, uh, then you come online on social media, 
that goes viral and then it gives publicity uh, to the particular act. Mm. Now, excellent, Randall. Thanks for for, for your for your comments on on the on this particular case. I think. Um, the, the I think if I, if I look at all the messages coming through, you know, people are very, quite horrified by this thing that has happened. I mean, people are watching it on TV and um, people think that 15 years for someone's life is too little. And they're absolutely right. And um, the but in, in but let's watch that space and hopefully you'll be coming to give us more information as things unfold uh, with that case. Indeed, so, so Randall, thank you very much and uh, yeah, Oma Varum, um, keep keep warm and uh, keep safe and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very I will much. Do that. Thank you. Okay, good evening. From Cape Town, this is the voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins. Assalamualaikum and uh, for those who just joined us, it's the legal hour and uh, yeah, I've got, um, I think Fadia is on the line already. Assalamualaikum Fadia. Yes, I'm here. Hello, I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's fine. Fadia Arnold, attorney, labor expert, um, yeah, specialist in uh, in labor matters and... Uh, Friend of the Higgins family. Yeah, about two years. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, Fadia, shukran for coming on air and um, yeah... I know that I jumped this on you in the last moment and uh, because it's just that I've got so many questions pertaining to retrenchments. You know, people no problem. People are saying that the companies are going under, it's going into liquidation. Uh, yeah. And, uh, of course, some of them are going into into business rescue, but, of course, in, they don't need all the staff and all that type of things. So can you just take us through the – let's assume now somebody uh, has now got wind that he's going to be retrenched. Can yeah. you just take us through that process? Well, how they are – need to get wind and the only way they can get wind of it in order not to um, have the company at fault is with the section 189 notice so um, 189 189 189. Mm -hmm. it will say 189 at the top of that notice Um, Mm -hmm. and you know like a notice to attend a disciplinary hearing it's always yeah so if you don't see the words notice in terms of 189 it's already procedurally and you're going to have an unfair procedure claim mm-hmm. um, so that you, you need to look out for as an employee so section 189 and there'll be a list of things uh, it's part of the labor relations act there'll be a list of things the employee would need to do consult with you um, offer you alternative uh, jobs for example you could be demoted or you could work on short time and they need to consult with you first and retrenchment should be a last um, resort. So these employers would just pop up and say, um, out of nowhere, look, you're being retrenched today. That's unfair procedure as well as substantively unfair. Okay. So, and then this retrenchment thing, you know, what is the options available to to the employees anyway you can say okay you want to retrench me but can't we negotiate 
Yes. Um, so a lot of people, and unfortunately, it, it, they don't have this advice, but as you get it from lawyers, is to enter into a voluntary separation agreement. And in that way, you uh, there's some tax benefits that you can get, and there's also just a lot of benefits in terms of just uh, not just being retrenched, and you can sort of just say it's a voluntary agreement that the two parties came to, the contract had ended as a result of the two parties deciding so. So you can get more of a, a, a benefit. You don't have to go for the minimum of one week. They could give you be a bit more clear on that one week story. What does the law say at the moment with regard to retrenchments? So if you work somewhere for 10 years, you'll be able to get one week per continuous year. That's the basic minimum for retrenchment. Okay. But you get these gracious employers that uh, offer you more when they don't need to or they enter into these uh, VSPs, uh, voluntary separation VSAs agreements, and then they'll give you two or three weeks per year plus expense compensation. But now we're talking about really gracious employees, employers. And, and what about this whole concept of um, last in, first out? First out. Can you tell us about that? So if somebody gets retrenched, but they feel that, you know what, they've been longer with the company and they've mm. got more experience or whatever the case is, can they object on the basis of that last in, first out um, scenario? They can, they can, but they're not going to get far, and I'll tell you why. Um, so the, in the 189, there will be a section which, which says we're going to have a discussion with you or consultation with you on how we plan to select those that we're going to retrench. And mm -hmm. LIFO would be part of that. But most employers are, are using the fact that, you know what, last in, first out isn't really working for them. They're looking at technology now. So if you are, and they're trying to take the human element out of as we go into the tech future. They're saying it doesn't matter you've been sitting at this desk for 12 years. We've got a computer that can now do what you do. So last in, first out isn't going to work. We're so so is that the, so? So what you're saying yeah. is last in, first out is not actually the law of the country? It's supposed to be, but no, it's not. You don't have to follow it. Um, it's not an obligation. It's not um, something that is, it's, it's a metric you can use if you want to. So let me if throw. You don't uh, use it, you mm -hmm. must justify that. Okay, now let me throw something else at you. Now let's assume for a moment that employee had it in his head that, you know, last in, first out. So does that not amount to a legitimate expectation? Which is part of the, 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 the label, I believe. Maybe just take us through that quickly. Is that not a, an expectation then? No, I wouldn't say so. Last in first sight is, is a clear metric um, and there's case law for that, that it's something that can be used. It's not an obligation placed on an employer. Um, where the employer may have a problem is if in their own policies they state, should uh, anybody be retrenched? LIFO, LIFO will be used. Then they've got a problem because they've put it in their own internal policies. Mm -hmm. But as South African law, it's just a metric that can be used and you don't have to use it. Mm, okay. Fadia Shukran, very much. I just wanted those things to be clarified. And um, you, you dealt with the process, you dealt with compensation. And um, yeah. yeah, so I'm not going to burn. In addition with the compensation yes. of the one week, you're also entitled to, to your one month notice. Uh, a lot of people for, uh, don't oh. um, 
give that one month's notice, but you're entitled to one month's notice if you've been there for more than a year. Um, if you've been there for over six months, it'd be two weeks notice and under six months, one week's notice. And that's in addition to your to your one week minimum if you're over uh, a year. So there's that extra. And, and while we got you online, uh, then, of course, after that one month and after they got their week uh, per, per, per continuous year, then are they still entitled, even though they got a bit of money now, they are, they are, are they entitled to claim unemployment immediately? Yes. So your UI-19 will state retrenchment, um, particularly if it's due to COVID, um, you'll, you'll be able to claim immediately and you don't need to wait for your employer to do it on your behalf. Um, due to COVID, I think we, we did discuss this last week. You can now mm. apply on your own. Mm-hmm. You just need the UI-19 and it would it would have ticked a retrenchment. They would have ticked a retrenchment and then they will work on your last six months average salary. Okay. So you can claim UIF. Um, you can't claim UIF and the 350 we discussed, the Sasagrand. You can't claim both. Okay, excellent. I think you've answered our questions for this evening, Fadia. Shukran, very much. Um, We're hoping to hear from you soon again. Okay. Yeah, just to let everybody know, the CCMA is physically open now, so you can go and lay your claims if you have internet issues. Mm-hmm. You can physically go to the CCMA and lodge your unfair dismissals if you feel that you've been retrenched unfairly, yeah, but COVID was an excuse, etc. Yeah, but you need to add the ride, wash your hands, put on your face mask, all that type yeah, of stuff. They won't <laughs> let you in without a face mask. Um, yeah. They'll screen you at the door, they'll sanitize you, and they'll take your temperature. Okay, excellent. Shukran very much, Vadia. Um, have a good evening. Um, Live from Cape Town, this is the voice of the Cape 91.3 FM. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins. And we're back with the legal hour. Um, I believe we've got Nazir Park on the line. Salaam alaikum, Nazir. Wa alaikum salam, Ihsan, and to the listeners of the Voice of the Cape. Yeah, I can't be here. Yeah, Ihsan, we're trying to keep ourselves warm, but uh, fortunately we are blessed to have a little bit of heat in our homes. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Nazir, um, we, to, we, we spoke earlier, I spoke to, to, to advocate uh, Aslam Bava earlier on, and he was talking me through some of the procedural aspects of some of these cases, you know, that the government has to contend with at this point in time with regard to the the, the lockdown and disaster management uh, regulations. Now, specifically, you know, I asked, uh, requested you that you, you look at this, the De Beer case uh, whereby the judge come confirmed, or rather uh, in his judgment, he confirmed that the lockdown is unlawful, or certain aspects of it. Now, with with, with, with Advocate Aslam uh, Bava, we looked at the procedural issues. I would like you to deal more with the with the actual case, you know, mm. uh, the factual issues, the substantive issues pertaining to the case. So maybe just take us through that. 
Well, Ishan, the, the case in a nutshell was brought in the South Kanteng High Court in terms of which the new applicants, there were three of them, had decided that they wanted to, well, actually two applicants and one friend of the court, uh, whereby they had uh, attempted to have a judicial look at the rationality of the regulations uh, pertaining to alert level four and alert level three. And the judge in his judgment, Judge Norman Davis, was quite uh, substantive in the manner in which he came to his conclusions. And effectively, he was tasked with determining whether or not these regulations were, one, rational, and secondly, whether it was as a consequence of rational or irrational, constitutional or not. And there the judge had dissected the various coming about of the regulations and the legal implications of how regulations are conscripted and made law. And he also then looked at the regulations in terms of the implementation and the, 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 the sense of the regulations versus the current pandemic. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, he, he, he did quite a, a good job about dissecting it all. Uh, however, if you read some of the articles that have come out uh, post the judgment, you will see a lot of uh, attorneys and legal minds uh, being a bit uh, critical of the judgment. But as we will see when the matter eventually comes before an appeal court. Um, but we, we, we're sitting with but, but, a judgment. But, yeah, but now, just, just, Nazir, just stop there for a second. The, the critiques by the legal minds and the lawyers came about uh, as a result of um, them saying that it was not a, they don't think it's a good judgment. Is that correct? That is correct. There are certain uh, legal minds out there who have uh, become critical of the judgment. Uh, however, if you read it and you actually unlock the, the manner in which the judge looked at it, there's a little bit of sense in, 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 in how he came about his findings. And a lot of that, he, he looks outside the scope of the law in a lot of the, the aspects of the judgment. He actually looks at the realities of this uh, regulations and the impact it has on the people's rights under the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was very critical of the, the regulations and the manner in which the, the, the minister and uh, the national executive members haven't necessarily looked at the balance of taking or stripping away people's uh, rights under the constitution versus implementing these strict and, con- uh, and, and um, contingent uh, uh, laws that came pl- uh, as a result of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, so as, as he went on in his judgment, Ishan, just to, just to bring a conclusion to the, to the judgment in itself, he found that the regulations as uh, scripted and as passed was irrational, and as a consequence of the irrationality, it directly impacted on the Bill of Rights, and he effectively found that the regulations were unconstitutional. And he effectively ordered the minister to come up with new regulations um, within 14 days of the granting of his judgment. Which was, which was last week? Which, when was the judgment handed uh, down? The judgment in this matter was handed down, I think if I'm not mistaken, was, I will let you know now, if Probably on Friday. Second. Mm. He, yes, it was handed down on the 2nd of June. Okay. Uh, yeah. And basically, he ordered that the minister uh, provide fresh regulations under alert level 3 um, within 14 days, and failing which the regulations as they stand will fall, fall away. Uh, and just on touching on what you said with, uh, with uh, the previous uh, people on your panel, he, he was hesitant to go into the tobacco issue. In fact, he, he mentions it on the, in his judgment, but he, he stops. Uh, 
just before he can actually make comments about whether or not those regulations are lawful or not, he's leaving that to the other courts who was not tasked. Yeah, but I mean that was that's already before a court. I mean yeah. that particular regulation. So, yeah, so uh, that could obviously so that's deal with that. In a nutshell, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's in a nutshell how we how we came to the the conclusions. Okay, so so in your opinion. Um, this is is this gonna fly? I mean, purely opinion, purely speculation. Um, if Sean, look, he's, he's he's in this judgment. He mentions previous judgment out of this very division, whereby um, these regulations and certain aspects of it were taken to task, such as the the rights of people to gather in religious gatherings. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was also one or other two uh, judgments where he focused on where the judges in that very division were dealing with the matters. And he and he doesn't really go into the commentary there, but in, in effect, he relies heavily on some of the comments made there, uh, albeit he doesn't sometimes always agree with the findings. So whether or not this is going to fly, honestly, I, I think that the, this was a very bold decision made by the judge. We know sometimes we find... In our judiciary, sometimes the presiding officers are very skeptic about making harsh decisions like this. Mm-hmm. But that said, we, we're going to have a situation now where I believe um, certain cabinet ministers have come out and said they want to appeal the judgment. In fact, I haven't seen the notice to appeal. I don't even think there is one yet, but mm-hmm. safe to say that there was a media publication that they are going to appeal. Yeah. If it comes before a full court of three judges, there is a possibility that uh, the full court might not agree with this particular findings because they've got three different judges with three different mindsets. Mm. And it, it might not it might not stand. It might be set aside. Uh, although I don't see that stopping the, the matter progressing beyond the full court of Gauteng. It might even go to the Supreme Court of Appeal where the SCA will have to deal with it. And after that, it might even end up in the Constitutional Court because this is a matter of constitutionality. Uh, but my concern is by the time that that runs its course, we might be past all of this already in terms of the temporary regulations that we are challenging here. But Nazir, what, what concerns me right now is because of this particular judgment, of course, it, it emboldened so many people, organizations, mm-hmm. to now also, you know, say, well, we were also wrong. I mean, you had you, we have a situation now with the... The hairdressers. Um, yes. We've had a situation with with with, with, with Pat, the British American Tobacco Company. Mm. So uh, it seems like you know th- because of a judgment like this, you know, even though uh, it cannot be implemented uh, in terms of the order, you know, the, the minister has 14 days within which to 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 to, to do a comeback on this one. So, but now you see this, all these uh, applications being brought all over the country as yeah. a result of it. So, yeah, what do you think of that? I mean, like, and I mean, these, uh, these applications are brought, brought on an urgent basis. So before this judgment, uh, I mean, before the, the appeal comes uh, to the fore, we'll probably have other judgments as well. Well, Ishan, if we might not have the judgment, we're going to have a whole host of applications on an urgent basis being brought set based on this precedent. Mm. Uh, a lot of other sectors and or individuals is going to come and approach the courts on an urgent basis and say, look, this is what this judge said. He's setting a precedent. We can now rely on the findings here. And all of a sudden, you're opening the floodgates. Mm. And you might have a whole host of, of applications taking up all the time on the urgent roles. And 
I, I can imagine the judiciary is going to be overwhelmed with further applications. I mean, we've only but mentioned a few. Mm-hmm. There's so many others that we don't, that's not even reported. So we won't necessarily have the insight of the full spectra of, of, of judgment that's going to come their way. Yeah. And just uh, quickly, just I've been seeing that I know uh, you've, you've followed the, the cigarette uh, cases quite uh, actively. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening on that front? Uh, now, don't talk to me about the judgment. Talk to me about what's happening on the ground. You know, people being arrested for cigarettes, people arresting for, for, for selling cigarettes. Is that still happening? It's still happening. In fact, if, if one has a, a, a very brief look at the, the papers that has been filed now by British American Tobacco, they actually refer to the fact that this regulations imposing a, a, a ban on tobacco is now creating a new sector of crime within the country by, by, by selling, by the sale of, of illicit cigarettes, tobacco, vaping, all of these things. So it's actually, it's actually mentioned quite nicely in the founding papers. And on the ground, it's still happening. People are still paying ridiculous amounts of money for them to get the, the cigarettes. And if, if one has a closer look at the, at the application of, of BATSA, it's actually in, in, uh, very um, important to look at how they sketch the impact of tobacco on people and people's uh, needs and so on and so forth. So the reality is that nicotine appears to be the new drug and uh, people are, it's a, it's a very sought after drug at the moment and people are paying crazy prices and people are being arrested for selling it. And uh, what, what, what for me is a bit strange is, I mean, I don't know where I saw this. It might have been in a report or it might have been in one of the, 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 the regulations. I'm not sure anymore because we've seen so many regulations. <laughs> is that the, if you are caught with a cigarette, then you must produce a receipt prior to 27th of March. There's conflicting views there. I know Minister of Police had come up with that statement, but there's a lot of legal people who's come out and said that there's no there's no uh, fact to that particular uh, statement that is made. They, they question the, the, the rationale and the legality of it. Yeah, but it's um, even impractical. I mean, who goes to, to a shop? Uh, I mean, I'm talking about the normal spaza shop or a normal corner shop and ask them, can I have a receipt for a packet of cigarettes? <laughs> that's, that's just it. People mm. don't ask those questions and I can't see them changing their minds now simply because a particular minister said so. Yeah, I think, look, things must, must make sense, you know, and uh, of course uh, it must add up. So I don't well, think that that... That's one of the, the, the factors that Judge Davis had to go, go into detail with in terms of his judgment and... If, if, if people have the time, they must really go and have a look at it and see exactly how he, he dissects it. <laughs> you know what's funny on a lighter note here? Somebody just sent a, 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 um, a message here now with a packet of Richmond. Okay, Richmond. <laughs> Not even Mont, Mont, Rich Man. <laughs> and uh, he says that's normally 25 Rand, it's now 130 Rand. Yeah, you're still getting it cheap. Is that I believe cheap? people are getting getting it for 160, 170. Oh my goodness! You know what's what's concerning is the fact that a lot of people are on grants, on disability grants, on old expansion. They get that 350 rand, and the money that they they get from government, which is supposed to be for their well-being, whether it's for food, whatever, is now being used for cigarettes and alcohol. <laughs> That is, well, alcohol seems to be eating the right uh, pricing in terms of after the lifting of the ban. But in terms of the cigarettes, I fully agree with you. People are paying 
um, out of their pockets and deeply into their pockets, some of whom don't have those deep pockets, and they're paying even for these uh, tobacco, the, the loose tobacco, as they say on the street, the twak. Mm. Unfortunately, people are paying ridiculous amounts of money for that as well. Yeah. It's across the board. You can't just limit it to cigarettes at this moment in time. Well, let's watch uh, the, 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 the um, these developments very closely and, of course, you know, give report to the listeners on the basis of what's happening in the courts, what's happening in terms of the regulations, and, of course, any judgment that, that comes out. So yeah, I will keep my eyes on the. I will keep my eyes peeled on that. Yes, I will give feedback as it as it happens. Yeah, so, Nazir, listen. Before you go, maybe you can help me think through this particular problem. Before we get Wahida on the line, um, we first can. There's uh, a question that comes through. You know, unfortunately, you know, we we haven't done normal questions. You know, legal questions. We've dealt with yeah. COVID. We've dealt with lockdown and. We've been quite caught up, but here's a few questions, yeah, and I'm going to read one, you know, so that we can at least, you know, get this thing started again, where people say normal questions to the legal uh, hour. It says, yes, Salam, me and my husband started a business a few years ago. We worked together and could achieve many things in life, even a house. He only put the house in his name. We don't have a business anymore. We've both gone older now. I'm a bit confused because I'm supposed to get half of the house as we both worked hard for it as it was the backbone for the business. Now he's making a Sharia will, which is which I will get the eighth. What do I do? Please advise, Shukran. Uh, Michelle, it sounds, if I listen to that question, it, it, it sounds like they're only married according to Muslim rights. It doesn't it? Sound no, no, like they are. Saying, yeah, they are married only according to Islamic rights on this thing, yeah. Uh, so so there is the first uh, the hurdle that the listener must overcome because as it stands, the Muslim marriages are still in developmental phases. Mm-hmm. Um, so as it stands, the only relief that I, comes to my mind is the fact that she had formed a partnership with her husband when they got married, and they acquired these assets together, and as she says in the, in, the, in, the, in the message, they worked hard for it, and even though it's just an his name, lawfully, by way of partnership, she would be entitled to uh, at least 50% of the joint estate, or the estate of her husband, yeah. based on the fact that they were married and they worked together and they earned these monies together, paid for their debts together, so on and so forth. Yeah, there was a very nice case a few years ago um, called Butters versus Nankora. It was an Eastern Eastern Cape case whereby the High Court there basically gave the the right to the the wife that's not um, married in accordance with with, with the Matrimonial Property Act uh, the right to claim from her husband. Oh. In that case, she claimed 50%, but she was only given 30% by the court. So, I believe so. So in this instance, maybe the lady can also claim the 50%, and uh, but she's going to need, unfortunately, the assistance of an attorney. She can't do That's it on right. her own. So Because it's quite a complicated procedure, but it can happen. And, it and, can happen. There's a pre, these are precedent-setting matters, like we just discussed now with yeah. the, the Davis judgment. So, yeah. so these are where the ways our law is developed in the courtrooms. And um, the, this listener definitely has relief in terms of the Mukhoro judgment, as you mentioned now. Yeah. So, Shukran Nazir for 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 giving me uh, you know some support on this particular question. Absolutely. Um, and we will chat shortly. And uh, shukran for the updates. And uh, yeah. Okay. Assalamualaikum.
Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the Voice of the Cape. And we are back with Illegal Hour. We're going to continue with the last attorney on the, the line now. And um, we're going to look at um, uh, the issue of uh, Muslim personal law uh, and for the reason why there's been a, a report on the, um, in, in the media about government not wanting to recognize Muslim personal law. Uh, we then decided to get uh, one of the experts on the line, somebody that has been involved with Muslim personal law from since about 1996, and she's probably one of the most um, knowledgeable authorities uh, in respect of Muslim personal law, none other than uh, Professor Wahida. I mean, so I'm like Wahida. Walaikum Salaam, Thank you for that very generous introduction. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we've been working on this thing for so long. I mean, I, I don't need to. <laughs> uh, yeah. you, you, it's it's well deserved. <laughs> so, Waida, um, shukran for for joining us. And just uh, by way of more introduction, you are currently at uh, the UCT Law Faculty. That's correct. And you are the, and in fact, you said there were some changes, but the last time I spoke to you, you were the Associate Professor and Deputy Dean of Internationalization and Outreach yes, in the Faculty of Law. Is that still the case? Well, I'm still an Associate Professor in the Faculty. My term as Deputy Dean of Internationalization uh, came to an end last. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, so long now, internationalization and outreach. Oh, yes. anyway. <laughs> but Waida, coming back to the topic at hand, you know, this Muslim personal law, you know, um, yeah. you know, it's a topic that's close to my heart. It's a topic that's close to your heart. And it's a topic that's close to the heart of every single Muslim in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been grappling with this um, Muslim personal law since, uh, I mean, I remember the first meeting with Judge Nafsa, that was around about 1993. And, uh, and I mean, to date, I mean, so many years later, we're still, we're still exactly where we are. I mean, but of course, you're going to give us a little bit of an overview where we are at, and I want to move closer to where that report was the other day. So maybe just give us the overview first. Okay, so yes, you're correct. It's been a long time coming, and we're still not near anywhere near the, the finishing line. Um, I mean, um, we're looking now at 1994, when South Africa attained um, its constitutional democracy. And as part of the um, negotiation process, the ANC um, gave an undertaking to the Muslim community prior to 1994 that Muslim personal law would be recognized in this country. Um, 
1994 at the initiation of the late uh, Minister of Justice Dalauma, may we rest in peace. Um, you know, he initiated a, he established a Muslim Personal Law Board, and the brief of the board was to draft legislation to recognize Muslim personal law. But that board disbanded within a year of its establishment, and mainly because of ideological differences um, among the uh, people who were on the board. Um, a few years later, this was in 1999, another initiative um, commenced, and that was the establishment of a project committee of the South African Law Reform Commission. And that project committee was headed by Justice Mohamed Nafsa, who mm-hmm. is a judge of the um, at the Supreme Court of Appeal. Um, and that had more success. Uh, most likely because its focus was on drafting legislation to recognize specifically Muslim marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is distinct from Muslim personal law because Muslim personal law is much broader. Muslim personal law encompasses family law and inheritance, mm-hmm. whereas Muslim marriages is, is, is really a focus on Muslim family law, that's marriage and divorce. And so the committee, which was comprised of um, Muslims ranging from academics to practitioners to members of the ulama, um, and 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 took the, they they undertook a four-year-long process in which they looked at foreign precedents. Um, uh, they invited input from various sectors of society across the country. Um, they did workshops across the country, radio calls. I'm sure you will be, you'll remember across the country, mm-hmm. and they, you know, and 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 the the final product was came about after a number of drafts where where various members of society from within the Muslim community and outside of it, and various role players and stakeholders, including women's groups, were able to input on it. And they eventually submitted a report and a draft Muslim marriages bill to the justice, to the Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development in 2003. Mm-hmm. The bill then sat on, the, on that minister's desk until about 2010. Before 20, uh, leading up to 2010, the Women's Legal Centre uh, took the Minister of Justice to court. Um, at that point, they went straight to the Constitutional Court. The case was dismissed because there were no grounds for direct access. But as a result of that case, the Department of Justice then applied its mind to the Muslim Marriages Bill and they made some changes. And so there was a draft, there was a, a second version, the 2010 version. Mm-hmm. And that was then approved by Cabinet. And then subsequent to that, nothing further was done. Government from its side claims that um, there's not sufficient consensus within the Muslim community regarding the Muslim Marriages Bill, and they feel that uh, they need to give recognition to all religious marriages, not just Muslim marriages, because otherwise it would be discriminatory to members of other religious communities. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2018, the Women's Legal Centre again launched a... Uh, um, an application to in the Western Cape High Court asking the court to order government to enact legislation to recognize Muslim marriages. Mm-hmm. 
and the court came back and um, granted the application and gave government 24 months from the date of judgment to enact it, that to enact that legislation, not just to recognise Muslim marriages, but also to regulate Muslim marriages. But now that judgment has been taken on appeal, which means that whatever deadline the court set, which was 24 months from the 31st of August, which is when the, the judgment was granted, 30, what, 31 August 2018, right? because of the appeal, that date, the deadline would now be suspended. So, so in other words, the deadline is no longer the 30, 31st of August 2020. Mm-hmm. But what has happened now in the meantime is government has now undertaken a further initiative and in fact has initiated two processes, one by the African Law Reform Commission, another by the Department of Home Affairs. Both of them um, have uh, are wanting to enact legislation um, to recognize all forms of marriage. Now, the Department of Home Affairs has... Uh, has, has, has facilitated um, some dialogues with various members uh, and stakeholders within, within the community. So far, I think that they've dialogued with um, religious leaders and also academics. I was part of the academic forum um, last year sometime or earlier this year. Um, and they haven't produced any written documentation, but the African Law Reform Commission... Um, which appointed an advisory committee, uh, uh, published an issue paper last year, inviting public comment on that. And essentially in their issue paper, they give a little bit more insight into what they're thinking. They they are thinking of enacting a single marriage statute. Mm -hmm. And they say that that single marriage statute could take one of two forms. One, it could either take the form of a single marriage act. Now that would be an act that whereby all marriages would have to meet the same requirements and have the same consequences. Or it could take the form of what they call an omnibus or an umbrella marriage statute, which could comprise a number of chapters where each chapter recognizes and or regulates a particular type of marriage. Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I've applied my mind to this. I've made a submission to the, Lord, the African Law Reform Commission, and I've also um, you know, written on it in, in a journal article and, and, and various other fora. My take on the um, proposal for a single marriage statute is the following. A single marriage act I don't think will work, um, especially not to, to provide sufficient protection for, um, for Muslim women, um, and also, you know, it, it, it might afford recognition to, to the marriage, but it's not going to be able to recognize the features of a specific religious marriage. So if you take Muslim marriages, for example, you might, I mean, it is essentially the equivalent of basically amending the Marriage Act mm-hmm. and, and saying now Muslim marriages are recognized. But you're not you're not recognizing the features of the marriage. You're not um, recognizing the fact that a Muslim marriage is a, is a particular kind of marriage that is not necessarily the same as a civil marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and by saying that all marriages must conform to the same requirements and follow the same consequences, you're not recognizing the diverse nature of marriages in this country. Not just Muslim marriages, but other kinds of marriages, other religious marriages, um, 
that you're basically saying you're trying to 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 to, to brush them all with the same brush. Okay. Um, I think there's more potential with the omnibus kind of legislation, but here again, um, if government is serious about wanting to 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 give. Um, you know, to promote the principle of diversity, but also to, to ensure that sufficient protection is provided to parties of particular kinds of marriages, then they must not just afford recognition, they also have to regulate. So, so you could have a particular chapter, and in this, in this kind of legislation, the Muslim Marriages Bill could be incorporated as a separate chapter, for example. Okay, well, just on that note, uh, we're just going to go for a quick ad break. And then uh, when we come back, um, I want you to just to continue, but and then also of course focus on the, the the fact that the minister made certain statements in this week, you know, and just to maybe just uh, test you know what was said, and what the consequences of of what what was said. Live from Cape Town. This is the voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins. And we are back with the Legal Hour. It's uh, Ihsan Higgins here, and I've got Wahida. Um, Amin on the line, and she's giving us a breakdown of you know what's transpired in respect of uh, Muslim marriages since day one when this thing started and uh, where we are now. Waida, you were just continuing. Thank you, Sean. So, I mean, you can you know from from the the what I said earlier on, you can see that it's been a long process that various initiatives. I mean, I haven't even talked about the Imam project. That uh, um, the Department of Home Affairs tried to initiate uh, several years ago, um, but that in, in no ways. I mean, even those imams who are registered as marriage officers, they can perform, so they can register civil marriages, but it still doesn't mean that the Muslim marriages that they that they solemnize or officiate that those marriages are, are legal. The, mm-hmm. the 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 marriages can only be made legal through an act of parliament that recognizes it as legal, right? And so, as I said, there are a number, number of ways of doing this. They could amend the Marriage Act, but that's not going to find, afford sufficient protection for, for Muslims, especially Muslim women. They could even um, amend the recognition of customary marriages act, but again, that's not the appropriate forum to recognize Muslim marriages because it's not going to be able to regulate the marriage um, like it would be able to do in a a, a standalone piece of legislation. Okay, so, um, Aida, so, so what you're saying is the comments that the minister made to say that he can't make marriages, Muslim marriages legal, that's absolutely correct because he is a minister, he's part of the executive, he's not the, he's not the legislature. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Parliament has to enact legislation to recognize Muslim marriages. So, so that you know, if and if the if the minister said that, then the minister is correct in that we can't legalize marriages. Um, either Parliament has to um, enact legislation, or the courts 
have to change the common law definition of marriage to include Muslim marriages. But the courts have already indicated that they are going to leave the recognition, the actual recognition of Muslim marriages to the legislature to do because the legislature needs to undertake the necessary consultations in drafting that legislation. Now, we've already got a direction from the Western Cape High Court saying that by not recognizing Muslim marriages, you have violated a mm. number of rights mm. of, of, of Muslim parties. And so you must rectify this and enact legislation. Yeah, I think, um, Waida, on, on, the, on the, 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 the headline that we saw, um, and I'm, that was on the 2nd of June, uh, the headline read, We can't legalize Muslim nikah marriage, says Home Affairs Minister. And that was Minister Aaron Mutsaladi. And, uh, and I think it's a bit of a sensationalized headline, don't you think? Look, it's possible that this, uh, what, what the minister said, I didn't hear the minister speak myself personally. I mm-hmm. have, I've read the article. You're talking about the article. The article, yeah. Published mm-hmm. in the Star, right, on mm-hmm. the 2nd of June. It was written by Bongani and Corsi. Yes. It is possible that what the minister had said was taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and so, so, so the Department of Home Affairs can't legalize Muslim marriages without enabling legislation or legislation that enables the department to do so right so th- so that's that's the first thing the the from what i understand the issue arose because of a concern of about muslims passing away during this pandemic of covid 19 and dying um uh, and 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 after passing away, being issued death certificates that basically indicate they've never been married, and that this is an example of how the dignity of Muslims are being undermined because our marriages are not being recognised. Mm. Now that is true, right? That is that is absolutely correct. That our dignity is being undermined because our marriages are not being recognised as legal. The the for the minister to say that that there's nothing they can do about that, I think, is problematic, because there is a measure that they could offer now in the sense, in the form of, of, of regulations, perhaps, where they could they could um, uh, instead of the death certificate registering a person having died as as, as never married, they could they could indicate married by Muslim rights. That would give that would give the deceased and the deceased children and family a little bit more dignity. Um, so, so, so I think that that's one thing government could do now in the interim. Yeah, because that's a piece of paper. It's a, it's well, a, it's, a it's a piece of paper, but yeah, no, no, no. I'm saying it's like paper that, that is confirming the illegality of the marriage. Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. It's a piece of paper that they need to amend because maybe they can put on there they were married in accordance with Muslim rights. You know, you don't Absolutely. have to put there that they were unmarried because that's untrue. You know, it, it's not. Uh, it doesn't give dignity to the Muslim community. Uh, they could that's actually right. amend that piece of paper to stipulate there that they've been married in accordance with Muslim rights. You know, that's and. Right. So, 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 so that's, that's the one interim measure they could take. But the broader picture is, I mean, it, it still, it still is not addressing the issue of Muslim marriages not being legally recognised. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that, you know, um, I can understand the frustration of, of people um, that's been captured in this particular article because 
the process has been taking so long. And we've been promised that our marriages will be recognized from before 1994, and we're sitting in 2020, mm-hmm. and this has still not happened. So, you know, on the one hand, government has indicated that it does have these processes underway um, to afford recognition. On the other hand, you know, it's been taking so long, one wonders if we're ever actually going to reach um, um, finality on this. But Waheeda, there is currently still a very active court case happening. Uh, Am I correct? I mean, I think that was the one that was dealt with by by Judge Desai. Well, that's the one I referred to earlier on, the one that was adjudicated in the Western Cape High Court in 2018. No, no, but final judgment has not been given on that matter, has it? The, 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 the court in, uh, delivered judgment on the 31st of August 2018 mm-hmm. and ordered government to enact legislation to recognize and regulate Muslim marriages and the consequences thereof. But that judgment has been taken on appeal to the Constitutional Court. And so that has not been finalized. Yet. Okay, that's why I'm saying that, that, that even though Judge Desai did say at the time that government must, uh, must must rectify what is wrong. They've yes. obviously taken it on appeal, and um, it's been taken on appeal. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think, and, and is is there no um, there's no set down date, nothing at this point in time. Not, no, not nothing that I'm uh, that I'm aware of. Mm. Um, but I, but I think I think what is not been what has not been captured in that article um, is the fact that there are processes. Um, in place at the moment to afford recognition to all, you know, the intention or, or the intention that government says it has is to afford recognition to all forms of marriages, including Muslim marriages. Um, and so that is in the pipeline. What form that is going to take still has to be seen. When that's going to happen is yet to be seen. Yeah. So I think, Waida, maybe, you know, it might be a good exercise to, to, to maybe follow up on this, either with the, with the Women's Legal Center, because, of course, they've been involved in this thing, and they obviously are aware where it's at at this point in time. Okay. Uh, so that we can obviously report back. But I think, you know, just to put people at ease, you know, with regard to that particular article, I think uh, pretty, it was pretty much out of context, the headline. It sounds like it, it, it probably was. It may also be a good idea for you to perhaps get a representative of the uh, Ministry of Home Affairs mm-hmm. to, to, to maybe come and inform the, the, the Muslim community and the broader public. Yeah, I think that, will, that might be a very good idea to, to, to get uh, one of the spokespeople to, to come yes. on and explain that, that article because I think uh, a lot of people were thrown by that article and uh, I mean I was sent that article you know people they were frantic and say you know did you see this and you know, and when I read the article I realized that you know that it may have been taken out of context and um, in fact I think it has been taken out of context and I think maybe we should even get the minister on air never mind the, the spokesperson so I, mean, the I think that would probably be first prize and hear from the minister himself what, uh, 
um, where government is at about this issue. Yeah, we'll probably have to phone the um, the command council to get my of the minister at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyway, Waida, shukran very much for, for, for enlightening us in respect of where we are at with the Muslim personal law and... Um, yeah, we're going to keep our eye close on this one and uh, yeah, and hopefully we're going to get to some form of finality in the very near future. Inshallah, okay. Shukran Thank very much. Again, then, see you then. Salam. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, 91.3 FM and 95.8 FM stereo. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins. And we are now on our final um, few minutes of the Legal Hour. We did not have the leadership hour this evening because, you know, there's been so many uh, requests, you know, for legal information. And I thought, you know, it might be best maybe to put the um, the issue of the leadership hour on hold for next week. And uh, we've got a lot of people that we want to interview. I mean, people that have taken a lot of initiatives in our community, people that are that's been bold during this uh, period of lockdown and COVID. And uh, we would want to get these people on air on the leadership hour. But as I said tonight, you know, we've had lots of lawyers and uh, lots of information due to people wanting all this information. And yeah, so we, we do the bidding of, uh, of our listeners. So I would want to say that, um, you know, to those people out there, I mean, we've, we've heard of a lot of people before a few weeks ago it wasn't a situation that we knew people that that, that contracted uh, COVID now we actually know a lot of people that contracted COVID um, some of our, our imams our sheikhs um, our doctors um, our butchers our you know people ordinary people in the street that we know um, they've contracted this disease and um, we make lots of du'a for everybody, you know, to, 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 to come out of it, you know, and uh, as good as new. And, um, you know, we, we also make du'a for the medical professionals, the caregivers, and, um, and people researching, you know, um, the, the, the fighting of this, uh, this virus. So, yeah, that uh, leaves on that note, a bit of a somber note uh, on this very cold evening. Yeah, um, but we, like I say, always on the show, we are going to get through this. Um, you know, there's always a crisis, and uh, this is now obviously an unusual crisis, um, but we'll get there. So just for those people that still have legal questions, I want to say to them, they're welcome to contact me on the WhatsApp line of the Legal Cafe, and I will try my best to assist them. If I can assist them, one of my colleagues at the Legal Cafe can assist them. And that number is 082 And for those who missed it, 082 So from my side, shukran very much. I see that Yusuf has already come in um, and waiting to get on the show, on the show. So from my side, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The Legal Hour with Ihsan Higgins.